Father in heaven, we are so grateful that after another week of toil and of labor, of good work, that we have this opportunity for the next few moments to encounter your word, to be encouraged by your word, to be challenged by your word. Spirit, we ask that you will make us able to be listeners and hearers who will be changed as we encounter you. We invite you now is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So the scripture reading is an important reading uh, because it sets up where we're going to be for our sermon today. The Bible describes God in many different ways. As a shepherd, as a teacher, as a warrior, as a peacemaker, as a vineyard owner, as a builder, as a king, as a father, as a husband, as a judge, as a mother hen, as a lion, and as a lamb. And today's scripture reading, Jeremiah brings us to the artist's quarters of Jerusalem and introduces to us the picture of God as a potter. Now, if you remember a month or so ago when we began our series, Running With Horses, we spoke about Jeremiah in chapter 1 of verse 5, when God said to Jeremiah in his call, before I shaped you in the womb, I knew all about you. And this verb right here, shaped in the Hebrew is the verb yatsah. And it's the same word used in the story of Genesis when God forms and fashions the first humans. And now we encounter Jeremiah preparing to set an image before the people, an image by which they can understand themselves in relation to the work of God as he stands in the house of the Yotzer, watching him Yatzer shape and form. And this ancient man, Jeremiah, who lived and wrote his book six and a half centuries before the birth of Christ, during a time of ongoing conflict between warring kingdoms, Jeremiah was not one to beat about the bush. He had a message for Judah. And when he delivered his word, disaster was on the near horizon for the entire kingdom. Jeremiah lives as someone who is alive to the reality of God, alive to the ways and the shaping of God and the circumstances around him. And Jeremiah often takes the role of a radio announcer announcing a hurricane which is just about to hit town. And such was the case for Judah when we near the end of the Davidic age and the end of this uh, monarchy. And late in his life, Jeremiah would experience the terror and the grief of the Babylonian siege that would send his people into exile for 70 long years. And as a prophet, we find Jeremiah exposed and we find that Jeremiah named the sins of his people. He named the sins of idolatry, of lying, of slander, of oppression, of foreigners, of widows, and of orphans, just to name a few. And Jeremiah's prophetic message was basically, return to God, return to God, return to God. And this message is kept all the way through until Jeremiah 24, when we hear Jeremiah saying uh, and intoning God's voice, 
with a hopeful longing, then I will give them a heart to know, to know me, that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God and they shall return to me with their whole heart. <laughs> Jeremiah often positions God as a heart sick lover longing for his bride to return. And even today, as we go through the story, we will find a God who continues to long for our return, a God who longs for the reconciliation of all things through Christ, a God who wants us to come back to him. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 1 and 2 says, this is the word that came from Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. Now, if you go down to the potter's house, and you did so during the time of Jeremiah, you'd have found that pottery workshops were usually located outside of the town so as not to antagonize the residents who were there with the belching smoke from the kiln. And so Jeremiah would have recognized that going down to the potter's house was an important moment for him. It, and when potters who located themselves outside of the city um, would go to work, they did so so that they would be closer to the raw materials and more importantly, to remove a fire hazard from a built-up area. We notice in Jeremiah that he goes down to the potter's house. He doesn't go up to the potter's house. He goes down to the potter's house. And scholars think this indicates that Jeremiah went from the heights of Jerusalem and went outside of the gates of the city, some even say to the valley of Hinnom. And the potter that he encountered would likely have been working in a very modest space with only a wheel, a bucket of water, and some rudimentary tools to shape the pots he was making. Perhaps the, uh, the potter would have also had a shelf where he might place some pots, place pots that were ready to go to market, place pots that were ready for the kiln, and Jeremiah would have seen it. And then close by, perhaps, as we imagine this scene, the potter may have had an area where they would tread the clay that they had just pulled up from the swamp or from the river, trying to push out the right amount of water and to work out as many of the impurities as possible. And surrounding all of this would have been piles of pots, some ready and fired some waiting to be fired. And there would have been an area as well of broken pots, of shards, of pots that did not look like they could be used. And then most importantly, perhaps for a potter, there would have been an earthen kiln, an area that would be heated up and fired up with stacks of firewood right next to it, or perhaps dried dung if they couldn't get access to the firewood, stockpiled for the next firing. And in this instance, Jeremiah doesn't go up when the potter is carting clay from the riverbed. Uh, he doesn't go when they are, it's firing day and dark smoke is curling, belching hot flames from the kiln. Instead, Jeremiah 18 records the day that Jeremiah goes and he finds the potter working diligently at 
the wheel. Now, as I've read this story and I've tried to describe it to you as we begin our journey together, perhaps you have uh, the ability and the imagination to have traveled with me thousands of years and you see this scene clearly. But I wished myself that I could have a way to to have a first-hand experience of what it might look like if a potter was working with clay. So I sent a few emails. I made a few calls. And you know, uh, those who are in this community know that Walla Walla, uh, you can usually find what you want if you know the right people. And so in making some calls, I was directed to Steve Miller, who is a professor here at the university and teaches ceramics in the studio at Walla Walla University. And so I went down to the potter's house myself. I got with Pastor Jose and we watched as a lump of clay was turned into something beautiful before our very eyes. During our visit, Steve was very kind and listened to the many questions that I peppered him with as he made the pot. This entire process was eye-opening for me, but perhaps one of the most important moments for me was at the very beginning, after you see the pot, which is marred, being pushed down and the process beginning again, that Steve takes this lump of clay, holds it above his head and smashes it on the table. I remember I was standing there with Pastor Jose when we were talking and we both jumped a little because we were not expecting that as part of a process of seeing something come to life and be formed in the hands of the potter, that there would be a moment in which he would raise the clay above his head and smash it on the table. Now, I know nothing about pottery and so my immediate thoughts were, why are you doing that? It doesn't seem like you're treating it particularly carefully. Don't you care about the clay that you're going to use? It seems like an uncaring and frankly, a destructive measure. So I asked Steve, I said, Steve, why did you just bang the clay so hard on the table? And he said, I need to work with the material. I need to encourage the material into a good state. I need to stretch it so that it will be in a place that will make it best so it can be worked with. And like a good teacher, he continued to share lessons as he made the pot. And three lessons in particular struck me. And I want to share those with you as we think about Jeremiah in the potter's house. Now, if I had to categorize all of these lessons, I would say that they could fit generally under the heading of formation, how we are formed or how the pot is formed. And last um, fall, we spoke about the importance of practicing the way of Jesus, of following Jesus as an apprentice. And we recognize that the life of an apprentice is a life of formation into the image of Christ. And each of us, Watching today, wherever you are, whatever your situation 
may be in life. No matter how large or small your faith is, all of us are being formed every single day. The question is not, are you being formed? The question is, what are you being formed and who are you being formed into? So Steve gave this first lesson that struck with me. He said as he worked the clay that good clay is malleable. A cinder block has no malleability. Nobody is going to take a cinder block and put it on a potter's wheel, put some water on it, and hope that it becomes malleable and able to be worked into a shape. A cinder block cannot be shaped into anything. And the life of faith, the life and the journey after God is a life in which we must constantly accept the touch of God in our life as he forms us. It's interesting because the potter can only do so much with the clay. You would think that this is a story that perhaps, and to use a a theological word here, speaks about the sovereignty of God, being able to do whatever he wants with us as clay in his hands, with us having no choice. But no, even as a potter works with the clay, there is a sense in which the potter can only do so much. Our agency and our free will are crucial in God's artistic endeavor of creation and of new creation. And if we're going to be part of what God is doing in our life, and I'm going to use a word which would often make some of you uncomfortable, used in any religious context, is that we must submit to God. We must use the free will that God has given to us And as we feel God working in our life through circumstances that sometimes we may not like, we must submit ourselves to God and we must ask God, what are you trying to teach me in this situation? How do you want this relationship to shape me? How is this challenge shaping and forming me so that I can be more like you or less like you? God dreams that each of us will be the type of person that he dreams and knows we are capable of, of, of being as his spirit is in us. People who are loving, faithful, just, kind, courageous. People who are containers of the spirit of God who then go out into the world pouring goodness into parched places. And yet, even with good clay, sometimes the plan of the potter, like I said, doesn't always come to pass. Steve told me something which really, I have to admit, and those of you who've done fine art uh, majors or who work in pottery will know what he means. I still don't understand what he meant when he said this. He said, clay has memory. Okay, then. Clay has memory. I said, what does that mean? And again, if I deliver this wrong. It's not because Steve was wrong. It's because my recollection is faulty. But I remember him saying something along the lines uh, that if clay is worked in a certain shape before, and then you try to work it into another shape, sometimes it has a memory and seems to resist a certain touch or resist going into a certain shape, that it has memory. And it struck me, even as I try to understand this concept, that some of us understand this idea 
of having memory which makes us resistant to being shaped in certain ways. What do I mean? All of us, in some measure and in some way, carry trauma that causes us to act in ways that often make little sense. The saying goes that you might have Jesus in your heart, but you have grandpa in your bones. And some of these uh, epigenetics that get passed down through our generations cause us through no fault of our own, through shaping and memory that is beyond our own recollection to find ourselves sometimes making decisions and acting in ways that make us malformed and that make us push against what God is trying to do in our life. And you may wonder, why does it seem that my family suffers with such volcanic anger? Why is it that my family seems to have a streak of unforgiveness? Why is it that we seem to make poor decisions? Or Conversely, it seems that we have good family. It seems that we are able to resolve conflict. We are all shaped and carry memories that sometimes are beyond us. And so we find Jeremiah speaking about the pot. But what do you do and what does God do if we act in ways that are destructive, if we act in ways that are against our best interest. Does God discard us? Jeremiah answers this question in verse 4. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. And Jeremiah knew all about that. He knew all about spoiled vessels, men and women with impurities, and blemishes that resist the shaping hand of the potter. He rubbed shoulders daily with people who were not useful according to society, whose imperfections made their life leak, holding neither wine nor water. People who had a failure of proportion in their lives so they would wobble or tip over at the slightest provocation or the slightest difficulty, unstable and undependable. And if this is ringing a bell, I think it's because all of us know, all of us know marred vessels. We live with marred vessels. We work with marred vessels. They sit at our table during Thanksgiving. They create the laws that govern our state and our nation. They sit in the cubicle next to us. They stand in front of us in the line when we check out at Walmart. And most painfully, the marred vessels look back at us every time we look in the mirror. And so what should the potter do now? Marred vessels, unstable vessels, blemished vessels. Does the potter simply start again? Kick the wheel, go off in a sock, throw the clay at the cat go to the marketplace, ask for a better brand of clay and start again. No, the potter 
simply starts again with the same claim to make another pot. And God needs and presses and pushes and pulls. And the creative work starts over again, patiently, tenderly, skillfully. God doesn't give up on us. God doesn't throw away what other people may consider spoiled or what we ourselves may have caused the marring in our own life. God doesn't give up. And this, my friends, this is good news. I don't know about you, but it's good news for me. It's good news for me to hear that God does not discard us based on our worst moment or our worst decision. God does not look at our blemishes and say, you know what, I just need to uh, go from this version to a completely different version. Instead, God works with us. God is patient with us. God is kind to us. And this is good news. But I know that as I'm preaching, there are some of you who have gone and poked around the corner of the text, gone beyond the boundaries of verse 4, and you have read a little further in Jeremiah 18, and you're saying, but Andreas, I know you're saying that God doesn't give up, God doesn't throw away, but it seems to me that God does give up on Israel. I mean, it, it seems that's what he's saying in verses 7 to 10. And that's a good point, my friend. You make a point that I'd like to address. Verse 7, if at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at any other time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Right there, Andrea, see it? God says he will reconsider the good he had intended to do for it. God would discard Israel. So surely this message that you're trying to preach that God does not give up doesn't actually line up with the text. But my friends, if you look carefully at what Jeremiah is saying, I think the message is a little more nuanced. What Jeremiah is employing is called an if-if-then sequence. And you may be scratching your head, but don't turn the channel just yet. Stay with me a few moments. He employs an if-if-then sequence. So, for example, as God speaks to them in verse 7 through to 10, he's saying, if I, this is God saying this, say this, destruction, but if a nation does that, repent, then I, God, will change my mind. So this sequence is very important. The then expresses God's readiness to act in new ways. He will change in response to Israel's new behavior. And in both sequences, the first if of God is his initial decision to plant or to um, uproot. And the second if is Israel's freedom to make a decision to go into new creation. What does all of this mean? What does this mean? It means that Israel is not fated, but can act in new ways. It means that you and me are not locked in fate. It means the play has not already been played and we're just part 
uh, players in it, unable to make real consequential decisions, it means that we can make decisions that make a difference today, right now, where you are. And the same is for all of us. You are not fated. You are not fated to be stuck as the worst version of yourself. We don't serve a Greek God who is telling us, for example, that he is Sisyphus, that Greek God who was fated to push that large boulder up the hill every single day, barely to reach the top and for it to roll back on him and for him to do the same thing every single day. God does not fate you to such a life. With your permission, God can and will begin in you, in the language of Paul, to make a new creation. The second thing that Steve told me, which I thought was interesting, uh, particularly as we watched him seem to work so much on the um, outside, is that a pot must be worked from the inside out. When you make a pot on the potter's wheel, you have to work on the inside and realize that the work on the inside is just as important, maybe more, maybe more, just as important as the work that is happening on the outside. Now, the outside may look delightful. The outside may shine. The outside will be what attracts attention when you first see the pot. But if the potter has not spent time working on the inside, making sure that the walls are the right thickness, structuring the shape of the form, making sure that the base is centered and the base is strong and secure. It won't matter what the outside looks like if the inside is cracked, if the inside is unstable, it will fall over. And we live, my friends, in an age where it is too easy to be beautiful on the outside, but to be malformed on the inside. We live in an age where a 10, 15 second video can make you go viral and all of a sudden make you seem like you're an important person. We live in an age where if you have a great website, all of a sudden people can accrue to you what really does not exist on the inside. If you have a good brand and a good manager, all of a sudden you can be seen as someone important and you become an influencer. And we've all known people in our lives who seem to have lived incredibly good, sparkly lives on the outside. But because we're friends, we know what happens behind closed doors. Because they are our spouse, we know the demons they fight. Because they're our sibling, we know the difficulties that they are facing. And this is why the journey with God is not a journey that is concerned with the outside, but it's a journey that the New Testament calls metamorpho, complete transformation, metamorphosis, and it has to begin on the inside. The third point that I got as we spent time in the potter's studio was this, that the vessel must be fired to be functional. The vessel must be fired to be functional. What does this mean? Well, firing uh, is a process, an important process, of bringing clay and glazes up to a high temperature. 
The final aim is to heat the object to the point that the clay and glazes are mature. That is, that they have reached their optimal level of melting. Interesting. To the human eye, pots and other clay objects do not look melted. The melting that occurs is on the molecular level. Firing makes them durable and able to withstand large amounts of stress. Much can be said about this last point. Much can be said that a vessel must be fired to be functional. But let me say this, that the life of faith and of being shaped into a beautiful, functional form by the hand of God the life of being formed so that we can be carriers of the Spirit to a world that needs it is not always easy. And sometimes, my friends, it can feel like the touch of God in our life is firing us and burning us up. Sometimes God's Actions or inactions in our own mind can feel as if he has left us and closed the door on a furnace that surely is going to kill us. And yet, when we look at the process of the pot and the potter, the potter understands that it's only in going through fire that the pot will become durable and able to withstand large amounts of stress. The Bible tells us that the potter knows us well. In fact, the psalmist declares that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. And a skilled potter knows how to um, work the kiln, how to put the right amount of heat. Depending on the pot, sometimes it will be fired over a couple of hours and some over a few days or even weeks. The potter knows what he is doing to bring the strongest, most durable, most durable and most beautiful form for his glory and for the sake of our community and people around us. And when I think about pots, I think about the past year that we have gone through. And of course, the past year has been full of ups and downs, but one of the things which has come uh, into my consciousness, particularly this week, has been recently the shootings that have happened in Atlanta, as we have seen an increase of hate crimes against neighbors of Asian descent. And it's a lamentable and sinful moment to find ourselves in. Any moment in which we scapegoat another uh, race or nation as inherently inferior, foments toxic rhetoric and gives birth, as we saw, to violent retribution. And as followers of Christ, we affirm wholeheartedly, without reservation, that every single person is formed by the hand of God in the same way that he did in Genesis. That God takes time to create the curls to give the freckles, to give the height, to give the olive skin, to give the cocoa skin to people. And each form is beautiful in the eyes of God. We affirm 
that each person is created in the image of God, beautiful and necessary, regardless of race, ethnicity, nationality, or vocation. There is no human being who God does not have deep regard for. And this week, we remember and we stand and we affirm that the hate against our Asian neighbors and brothers must stop and is not of God. And Jeremiah, when we go back to Jeremiah 18, we find Jeremiah pleading on behalf of God like a desperate lover to Judah to return, to return, to return. And we find that Judah refuses to respond, refuses to participate in the work of God, refuses to willingly involve themselves in the shaping work of God in their life. And unfortunately, as we go through the book of Jeremiah, we will realize that the hopes of heaven are not realized. And God does not force Judah, just like God does not force you or me. He doesn't force them to conform to what he wants. Instead, he invites them into that shaping process. And it's unfortunate because Judah, in their recalcitrant, mullish unbelief, experienced heartbreak and evil far beyond what they could have imagined, climaxing in the fall of Jerusalem and in the exile to Babylon. And yet, through all of this, they are never discarded. When me and Jose were leaving uh, the Potter's Lab here on campus, I saw in the corner somewhere um, a bucket, and that bucket had shards and pieces of pottery. So I said to Steve, what do you do with those things? You toss them out. He goes, no. He goes, these can be reused. Scratch my head. How, my friend? How? They're so small, they're so broken, uh, and they are just in a corner. Surely these are going to be tossed out. And he said, no, these can have water added to them. And when water is added to them and mixed, they can eventually become workable clay again. And they can be shaped and formed and fashioned, and they, become, they can become functional and useful once again. And so if I've been preaching and, and speaking this entire afternoon, and you are, you're trying, but it's difficult for you because you have gone through such difficulty in your life. You find yourself on a precipice of faith, one foot out, ready to leave. And you see yourself not as a vessel which is whole, not as a vessel ready to be used, but instead you find yourself right now in your life feeling like you are a broken shard in the corner of the potter's house and surely the next thing that's going to happen is you're going to be tossed out and discarded. Know that God never discards us. Even Israel, when they go into exile, God is with them. God does not leave them. God still loves them because God's love for us is never dependent purely on our behavior. God loves us because he created us, because he redeemed us, and there is nothing more we can do to gain an ounce of his love or his approbation. So if this is you this afternoon, you feel like you have been broken, shattered in pieces, and you are wondering, God, can you still use me? 
God, do you still want me? God, should I give up? God says, no. The potter, if you give him permission, will take you, will work you, will form you back on his wheel. That the hope of heaven, that the dream of God would come to pass in your life. That you might become a vessel that carries Jesus, that carries the hope of the world. And this morning, if this is your desire, I invite you at this moment just to join with me in confessing and in praying to God that this is indeed our desire. God, we entrust our lives into your loving hands. Vex us, stir us, shape us, form us. We Offer up the whole of ourselves to you. Heal our brokenness and make beautiful our scars. That our gifts of wisdom and understanding may reflect the beauty of your truth and be used in service to the glory of your name. Lord, heal us and illumine the whole of our being. That we may be your instruments in the healing of the world. Amen. Again, thank you for joining us this week. We hope that the service was a blessing to you and we're so glad you worshipped with us this Sabbath. Please let us know where you're joining us from. You can send us a message on our social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on our church website. And we pray that you have a wonderful week and God's richest blessings go with you.